Well, we're so pleased to have Angelina Burnett on the Globe Screen podcast. Welcome, Angelina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. And I guess uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a film and television writer. Uh, I grew up in Texas and I always sort of knew I, my parents are both in the arts. And so I always sort of knew I wanted to do something in that realm. I thought I wanted to be an actor for a while, but then I came to my senses <laughs> and I studied at NYU. I studied theater and then I realized I didn't want to be poor. And so I moved to LA and, you know, did the hustling. I did the assistant game for probably eight or nine years sort of working my way up the ladder, knocking on a lot of doors, making a lot of contacts. And, um, you know, finally got my first staff writing job on a TV show. And it's, I've been really, really lucky to have worked consistently ever since. That's amazing. Now, did, did you do a lot of writing growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I always wrote. I had a million notebooks and journals. And I think my first, I tried to write a novel for a while that was basically just like a knockoff of Anna Green Gables which is I think what most of us do. Like we find a thing we love and then we copy it like 17 times and that's how we learn. But yeah, I always wrote. I actually, um, I remember being on a plane with my dad when I was probably, I don't know, like 12 or 13, maybe younger. And I'd written a poem and this was still when I wanted to be an actor. And I showed my dad this poem and he was like, babe, I think you're gonna be a writer. And I was so mad. I was like, no, I'm gonna be an actor. But he was right, it's the thing I'm best at. So, um, you know, when I realized that, that if I kept working, I could I could maybe be a great writer, but I would never be a great actor. Like at best I'd be good. You know, that's that's sort of when I, I made the shift. Now, I think that's important to kind of recognize your strengths. And sometimes like you brought up the point about your dad, I, I find that sometimes it's other people that recognize our strengths yeah. with a, a little bit more with some objectivity. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, a lot of people are curious what's different about TV versus film. And I guess, could you share with the listeners what it's the process of writing for TV is like versus a film? It, do you usually start off in a writer's room if you're writing for TV? I mean, um, I should be very clear that my experience is solely in, in hour-long dramas. I, um, and comedy rooms work very differently than dramas. So if anybody out there is listening and wants to do this for a living, um, and you're a comedy writer, I don't know that this is gonna be applicable, but if you wanna write drama, um, mostly it's written in a writer's room, yes. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of sort of little permutations and variations, but generally speaking, um, you know, someone creates a show, they've written a pilot, you often shoot the pilot first before you, they even decide if they're gonna pick up the show. So once the show gets picked up, you you often, you at least have a, a one script to go off of. Not always, but usually you have a script to go off of, or you'll have a shot, cut, finished episode, which is helpful if you're a writer coming into that, that process to sort of get a sense of the showrunner's taste and style and the rhythm of the show, feel. And then generally you spend a week, two, three, depending on how the room is being run, really staying blue sky and big picture. I, again, I primarily, in fact, I would say maybe well my first two shows were sort of hybrids but primarily I work in sort of serialized storytelling meaning that um like law and order is episodic so like the story begins and ends in a single episode and almost never are your main characters um unspooling a story that will continue on through other episodes I think those those kinds of shows CSI law and order every once in a while will do like a very faint season arc in the background of of their their episodic storytelling but primarily what I do is serialized storytelling meaning 
you know, you might have a story resolve within an episode, but really what you're doing is telling a 10, 13 episode long arc for these characters. So that requires a lot of um, really mapping out and planning. Like when you're doing uh, episodic television, you're just getting in there and you're breaking an episode, right? Like it just, you need your, you need your crime and you need your victim and you need your perpetrator and you need to get your clockwork plot figured out and you get your five acts or your six acts and you break them and you're done. In serialized, you really have to spend a lot of time mapping out the sort of shape of the whole season. And then when you dive into specific episodes, you're always sort of checking back in with that blue sky, big picture work that you did in the beginning to sort of see, make sure things are tracking. And then you can sort of adjust. And oftentimes, you know, depending on the show and depending on how well the room is 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 running, you'll have to backtrack and be like, oh, actually that, that moment we put in episode two Really, it needs to come in episode three. And actually, we want to get here, so we should change that moment so it's actually a little different than it is now. A lot of that kind of stuff happens. And so that's really, that's how television gets written, generally speaking. I've only done a couple of films, um, neither of which have shot, one of which is um, still in the writing process, the second of which is really just in the very beginning stages of figuring out what the story is. And film is really a director's medium. They have all the power. I I mean, I come out of theater and so I'm incredibly collaborative and I believe that art and storytelling should be collaborative, but that's like what makes the best work. So I actually don't subscribe to this notion that someone has to be, get the final word. Like, like, yes, like auteur theory. Yeah, I mean, it's fine if you're doing, they're truly doing everything. Right, um, right. You know, The Collins truly do everything. There's also two of them. I don't know if Wes Anderson, you know what? I'm going to let this guy out. So I was going to, I was going to ask, was it kind of something getting used to writing in a collaborative sort of way with no. other people? No, not at all. I mean, again, I went to theater school, so that's right. the whole thing, like learning how to work with other. I mean, we had a whole class on collaboration at NYU. <laughs> um, I take to it really naturally. And there's definitely like, you know, I had to learn when you come in and you're young and, and, and people sort of don't take you very seriously. There's 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 an old school hierarchy in television. Like when you work with dudes who've been around forever and I say dudes very specifically, they're rarely to never women <laughs> because until I'd say really the start of my career 10 years ago, has it been 10 years, 20 years? 20 years, I can't even keep track anymore. Um, I've seen, I've been part of this sort of wave of women going from like 15 to 20% of television writers rooms to like, you know, 30 or 40%. That's great. Um, so the, the old school dudes really have this top down hierarchy where like experience rules. And if you're young, you kind of need to keep your mouth shut. And it's like, well, then why did you hire me? Right, right. <laughs> like, what am I doing here if you don't want my ideas? And um, then is, is, have you seen like boldness be rewarded or is that just really risky and people have to be really, you know, timid at first, or there's just like a certain kind of, it sounds like there's a lot of politicking. It depends on, I mean, I've been really blessed that most of the rooms I've been in uh, come from a place of openness and humility and collaboration and best idea wins. Um, there's really only well, yeah, okay, yeah, a couple of rooms I've been in that are, that are really like, know your place. Um, and I think, you know, what I learned was that when I was younger, I especially being a woman, 
and especially almost always being the only woman in the room in the early part of my career, there's a real like put up your dukes, like I've got to fight to be heard. It's a real cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. The number of times I have seen or been the woman pitching an idea, have it land on the table with a thud, no one respond to it. And then 15, 20, 30 minutes later, a man pitches the exact same, same idea and everybody's like, oh, that's great. Like it happens, it used to happen. I've Now the rooms I've been in recently, it's, it's not so much a problem. But in my early years, it happened all the time. And it makes you insane. Yeah, I can You're imagine. Like, my, is my voice even coming out of my mouth? So um, I could be a little bit combative in those early years in a way that didn't help, didn't help my case. You know, now that said, were a young man coming with the same energy that I had been coming with, he would have been treated very differently. So I had to learn to sort of modulate my, I'm also just incredibly passionate and some people get a little weirded out by that. Other people just embrace it with open arms and love the energy. So I've had to learn sort of part of getting older and more experienced is learning how to modulate my personality and my way of working and my process to really blend with the other voices in the room and find a way to disagree respectfully. There was definitely a time in my career where I did not, even though I would, I still to this day, I'm like, I was right about that thing. <laughs> There's a way to yeah. be right. And it's unfortunate that occasionally like women have to work harder at that than men do, but it's just, it's just the reality. If you want to work, you have to find a way to do that. That is unfortunate, but I'm also happy to hear that it's changing in the writers' rooms and in the industry overall. So that's that's a positive trajectory for sure. Slowly but surely. <laughs> now, is uh, the process for projects that are airing over a streamer versus di uh, let's talk about like how you know streamers like Netflix and Amazon have changed the game versus traditional broadcast cable shows uh, um, in the TV industry. Well, I mean, gosh, I could, I could, I could talk about this for hours because there's, there's many, many layers to it. I assume what you're most interested in is the creative process and not the economic reality. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely the creative process. Cause yeah, the economic, that could be a whole other workshop, right? Or a series. How, what I'm imagining, and this is what I'm curious about because I, and I was thinking about this when I was, by the way, watching Halt and Catch Fire, which I loved. Um, so I started watching it a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this podcast. I wasn't planning on binging it cause I'm not much of a binger, but I completely, I started watching it on a Friday night. I think it was like at 10 o'clock, um, I was working on something. I have like a little home theater down here and I was rendering something for a project and I was like, Hey, let me put it on. It's like nine, 10 o'clock. I watched the first episode and I was like down here to like almost two, three o'clock in the morning. Just oh, <laughs> and then I've watched the whole thing so far. And oh, wait, have you made it all the way through? All the way through. All oh, the way through. Wow. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm touched. I mean, that show is the greatest joy of my career thus far. And I, it's the one thing I wish everyone would watch. So thank you. That means yeah. a lot to me. Yeah, no. I, and I don't want to give away any spoilers for people that haven't had the pleasure of watching it yet but there was definitely moments where it was very emotional watching that show because you do get very vested into those characters i mean they were amazing characters. I, uh, that's a, that room is a great example and I'll, i promise i'll loop back and answer your question about streamers sure but um that room is a really great example of of um just 
everyone just the perfect chemistry of um you know everyone in the room loving each other and feeling safe with each other and really bringing their best stuff and opening their hearts um and and as i was talking about like i'm kind of a lot i'm passionate and i can take up a lot of space um and that that was really embraced in that room and one there was there's two creators two co-showrunners the chris's we call them chris cantwell and chris rogers um and cantwell uh told me about halfway through my second season on the show that he he had quietly decided that i was his barometer of whether or not something worked emotionally because i'm so like i love those i'm a, i'm an emotional person anyway like i cry at the drop of a hat if i feel something that's coming out my eyes but i love those characters so much and what we put them through was just like really intense and so Cantwell would say if someone pitched a big swing of an idea, like a big emotional move, he, his eyes would immediately flick to me. And if I was about to start crying, he knew it was a good idea. <laughs> and I didn't know he'd been doing that, but that had become like one of his barometers for whether or not an idea should stick. So, um, so yes, streamers versus broadcast. Um, the So it used to be... And if you ever want to have me back on to talk about the economics, I'm a leader in my union and I feel very, we're, we have a new negotiation in two years and it's going to be about this. Oh, um, amazing. Yeah, definitely. So please, I'm happy. I love talking about this stuff. And I think it's really important people understand it. Um, so um, it used to be you made 22 episodes a season. That's what broadcast was. And still like a CSI or a law and order, there's still 22 episodes a season. And it takes roughly a year to make 22 episodes. Like that's a pretty good, like it, it sort of naturally falls in a year. If you get behind in the writing process, it can start to feel, it can't, I've never done 22 episodes. The thought of doing 22 episodes in a year makes me want to throw it's, myself. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. It's so much. And what I understand from many of my writer friends who primarily work in broadcast is that you hit a point about two thirds of the way through the season where you're just like, I want, it's just such a grind because you can't, you have to, in order to have the season on the air, you can't write it and then shoot it. You start writing, but then production starts. And so the train is moving. Yeah. There's no, we can't crack this story because this story shoots in three, four, six weeks. So, you know, you have to accept that some of your episodes are going to be bad because you just don't have the time necessary to craft the best version of the story. And, and that's more the case with episodic? Absolutely. Yeah, gotcha. I would, say, I would say broadcast as well. Like 22 episodes is a lot, 22 hours is a lot of story. Well, it's quite, I mean, it's 43 minutes an episode, but I don't do math. So let's say 22 hours. Um, that's a lot of story to tell. That's a lot of plot to craft. That's a lot of character moves to make, make sense. Um, and I think, you know, I remember back when, um, the good wife was still on the air and there was a lot of Sturm and Drang from those, that sort of corner, um, because they would get nominated every year for stuff and then lose to cable shows. And a lot of folks who worked on that show would make the point, like what we do is so much harder. We have to churn out 22 episodes of this and we're losing to like shows that make eight or 10. And I get that like they're not entirely wrong like the good wife is a very well-made show and 22 episodes of character serialized drama is fucking hard um so so that's the nature of broadcast what started happening with streamers 
Um, and actually sort of happening with cable, but it's carried over into streaming. And there's also been, I, I will admit, um, uh, a real inf influence from the UK as well. Because, uh, um, you know, streamers have picked up a lot of sort of British and European shows. And um, the UK model, the BBC model, is very much, um, because the BBC is publicly owned, um, when a show, when, when a creator sells a show to them, basically they're like, okay, how many episodes do you want? They're not like, we need X number of episodes to fit into this box. It's like, how long is it going to take to tell your story? So if you'll notice when you go to, you know, pull up all those different UK British shows on streaming, they're six, eight, 13, 10, it's all over the place. So I think there was, you know, there was such a need for content and I hate referring it to, to it as content, but that's what they call it. Um, uh, for these streamers um, and because it's just um, it's such a punishing schedule to do 22 and it's not really necessary for their economic model to have like broadcast networks are selling ads you have to have new story to, to justify the price of the ad that's not the case on the streamer they want eyeballs so it doesn't matter if it's 22 episodes of one show or 10 episodes of one show, 10 episodes of another, it's still the same, it's all, it's the same amount of content to them. That makes sense. So what happened with streaming in terms of the creative process, and I, I go back and forth as to whether I think this is a good thing or a bad thing creatively. Economically, it is terrible for writers and directors and actors. Creatively, I, it depends. But what happens is you end up writing everything at once before you even start shooting. So production and the writing process become a bit divorced. Um, where I think that's problematic creative, well, let me start with the, where it's great creatively, is it really, you don't get in that crunch time you do on broadcast shows where you're like, we don't have a choice, this is the best we've got, it has to shoot, we're going. Um, you really have the time to craft and make everything the best it can be. And to do that thing I was talking about where you like get to episode eight and you're like, oh shit, the way we set this up in episode two is not serving us. We need to go back and tweak episode two. You can't do that if you've already shot episode two. You're just living with it. Um, where I think it's a problem, and this I can, I can speak to a very specific experience on Boss, which I bring up a lot because it was such a wonderful light bulb moment for me about how to do my best work. Um, Kelsey Grammer was the star of that show. And um, Kelsey is technically maybe the best actor I've ever worked with. Like I've heard people he, say that before. Yeah. He's miraculous. There's this thing you have to do in film and TV called matching. So, you know, you shoot a million different takes from a million different angles. And in order, if you want to cut from one to the other, and you're holding a glass in your hand, you have to hold that glass the same way in take 10 as you held it in take one. Because if you're holding it a different way and you cut, you're like, there's just, even if the audience member doesn't, can't pinpoint why it's weird, it throws you. Um, and it's, it's a hard thing to learn how to do. Kelsey would be like, oh crap, my thumb was here, not here. We have to do that over. Like he knew, it's like, he rarely messed up his matching, but when he did, he immediately caught and he would catch the most specific details that honestly, like as a, as a writing producer on set, I would have let it slide. Um, so I was fascinated by him and I watched him like a, 
And the great thing about the way Boss was made, at least in the second season, this was not the case in the first season, which was a bummer, but we ended up moving the writer's room to Chicago where we shot. So our room was like a 30 second walk from set. So if we took a break, I could just walk to set and sit and watch the actors. And you learn, when you have good actors, you can learn so much from them and you can get so many cool ideas. And I had noticed over time that Kelsey, and I, I watched him make the point with numerous different directors when they would try to set blocking. When we were doing a scene in his office, he would not stand, he would not come out from behind his desk. That was his power play. And so directors would want to get him to like come around to the front and like lean on the desk. He's like, no, 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 that's a weak position. I don't do that. And some of them would be frustrated, but with, a, with an actor like him, you're like, no, he's made a very specific choice and we respect it. So we had this moment towards the end of the second season where he'd been in this sort of uh, manipulative cat and mouse game with one of his aides who he had developed feelings for, but wasn't really sure if they were real. He was losing his mind. It's a whole, it's like modern politics uh, version of King Lear. So he's sort of going crazy. So he doesn't really know how he feels about her and if he wants to like cut her throat or fuck her. Um, and in a particularly vulnerable moment, uh, they had this really intense scene. And so I was like, I'm gonna see what happens if I write in action line, Kane comes around from behind his desk and leans on the front of it. And he did not bulk for us. He didn't even mention it, he just did it. And it was, it, and it was truly with the, the, the crew was in tears, the actor he was working with was like, it was just one of those scenes where he went from, he'd been this intense character the whole time and you almost never see him vulnerable to just letting himself crack open. And I was just so, it was so, and he never said anything to me. He wasn't like, oh, I see what you did here. He just did what was on the page because I had seen the choices he'd made, folded it into my understanding of his character and known that in this moment, this was the time to break that rule. And that was so profoundly satisfying to me as an artist. That's amazing. Um, and I've, I've carried that with me. And you can't get that when you're writing everything at once and then you're going off to shoot it. You can't get that feedback between actor and writer. Th that makes perfect sense. And I was just going to say that um, it, it's actually cool that you have an acting background because I think that gives you probably even more of a sense of empathy with the actors as well as even the characters themselves. It does. And I will say, I talk to a lot of young writers who have gone through either, you know, BFA programs or MFA programs, and they've had some screenwriting or television writing professor beat into their heads that in action line, you can only write what you see. It has to be bloodless and efficient and, and practical. You know, he picks up the cup, he walks across the room, something explodes. Um, Yes, action lines have to be efficient. This is not the place for your purple prose, although I've been guilty of that um, more than once. But action lines, and I believe this strongly, <laughs> are a place to talk to your actor. They're a place to put thoughts and ideas in their head. And I cannot tell you how many actors have pulled me aside and thanked me. Like it's, they've been going along in a scene and they'll get to an action line where I just have one sentence where I'm like, I don't, can't even think of a good example right now, but just a really efficient, really simple sentence that's like, that that puts a thought in their head and they're like, oh, I see the scene in a whole new way now. Well, 
I'm thinking of an example that one time I saw an interview with Giancarlo Esposito when he was doing Breaking Bad, and he was trying to understand the character of Gus, and he said that when he first read the action description, it said Gus is a character that hides in plain sight that Vince Gilligan wrote. And he said yeah. that one single line just totally dictated how he should play that character. You know, and yeah. I think that's one of those sorts of things. Yeah. I, and I had, I worked with this really brilliant director who sadly is no longer with us. He was the directing executive producer on the shield, which was my first job in television. That was with Michael and Chilikas, we, right? The shield. Michael Chilikas, yeah. Yeah. Chilikas, yeah. Um, Scott Wood, this is my, was my boss, the director. Um, would get up from the monitors and walk to an actor and whisper. It was, it truly was so amazing to watch. They would, the performance would be one way. He would get up, he would whisper something in their ear. And, um, and then we'd come back, he'd be like, okay, going again. And the next take would be completely different and everything we needed for the moment. And I, the first time I saw him do it, I was like, what did you say? And he's like, no, that's between me and them. He would never tell me what he said. And I asked him why he whispered. I'm going to cry because I miss him. Um, <laughs> and he would say, because a whisper feels like a thought. Wow. And not telling an actor what to do. You're putting a thought in their head. And that ripples through their body and their process. Um, and so I really have taken that onto the page is to find a way to whisper to actors on the page. Um, and the thing that you're talking about that Vince Gilligan did, that's great. And I do that too. But I'm talking about something even deeper and more emotional. Like that is an outside POV. This is who Gus is. I'm talking about Gus. Gus looks at the cup and and the heartbreak of his childhood comes rushing back to him. That's a terrible hacky version. But no, that but I, I, know, I see what you mean. Thing. Yeah. Sorry, we got sort of got off the. No, the no, this is amazing. I love that. it. Um, but, but, and actually, but actually, it ties into the next question completely with. Uh, between a show like Boss, because you, you wrote episodes of that, as well as uh, writing episodes for Halt and Catch Fire, what, what was the, how was the writing process different on each of those shows? Um, well, Boss, I mean, even though, as I mentioned, I did, I've never really done sort of pure procedural television. Boss had a little bit of a procedural element to it in that it was super plot driven. Um, not that we didn't put a lot of thought into the characters and what they wanted and how they were going to move through the world. But really primarily our concern was clockwork plot and hiding the ball, um, you know, political machinations. It had a little bit of scandal to it, right? Like, you know, you want these sort of big reversals where you're like, holy shit, I didn't see that coming. Or, oh, he's so smart. He's been planning this all along. And I, you know, um, and that's not, Halt is, fundamentally always, always, always character driven. So plot, and I, this is, this is, I think part of the reason I got the job on Halt was because I was able to talk about this experience on Hannibal. I also run on Hannibal, which um, is created by this guy, Brian Fuller, who's a low key genius, a madman, but a genius. I love him very much. Um, and he made me a better writer. And I was never able, I really was never able to nail the voice of that show. I think that's probably the only show I've written on where just like, I pitched some good stuff and I definitely contributed, but I was never able to like land Brian's voice. And I don't, frankly, I don't know if anybody Brian can, but, but he, everything he does, he approaches from an emotional place. So we would pitch plot and he would be like, eh, I don't understand it emotionally. 
And and it it really that year of working with him totally shift, especially after something like Boss, which was so plot driven. And so how do we surprise the audience, this sort of clockwork mystery box feeling? Um, to so reorient my perspective, I went in to have my interview on Halt, and that's what I talked about. And that's very much what they do. Um, it was less, you know, Brian's very esoteric and um, actually that's not the right word. He's sort of a surrealist. He's just like a queer surrealist, which I love. Um, but Hall was very grounded in a way that Hannibal wasn't, which made it easier. And, you know, it was set in Texas in the 80s. I grew up in Texas in the 80s. So, like, I had a lot of access points. Um, but that ability to be like, we don't know what, what the plot is this episode, but where is Cameron emotionally? And what what do we want to be feeling about her? And how do we want to feel about her at the end of the year? Like, everything we did, and of course there's, like, you know, the overarching season, this is the router season, or this is the, you know, the um, BBS gaming season. Like every season had sort of an overarching tech plot that we hung all of the emotional stuff off. But that was secondary to the conversation about the emotional journey we were going to take the characters on. So that's really what made those two shows very different is the angle from which you come at the storytelling process. And after Hannibal and, and Halt, um, I, I can't even flip my brain back. I don't need, I, I have such a hard time flipping my brain back to the other way of telling stories now. It's just not as satisfying. Um, and it's interesting because what I've realized is that's, and I, it's not like I didn't know this, but it, it, I didn't feel it until I'd gone through those two shows. That's just not how the vast majority of people in our business approach storytelling. So when you're dealing with executives and, um, frankly, directors, <laughs> not always, but sometimes, <laughs> um, it's like, what's the plot? What? And it's like, no, 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 no. What, who is this person? What do they want? And, you know, what childhood trauma is, is, has screwed up their whole way of relating to the world? Like what's, you know, what's their damage? one of my all-time favorite movies heathers that's um, a great movie and that's that's my favorite way of working and i think that way of working for my taste always produces the best storytelling even if you're telling a plot driven story like i think the great example of this i am obsessed with the mission impossible movies i think they're fucking brilliant and including I the first like, one with brian that brian de palma directed I love all of them except one, and I can't remember which the one is that I don't like. But there's one that I think is terrible, and the rest of them I think are inspired. But <laughs> it's, and I know I actually found out from a friend who, well, it doesn't matter what the connection is. But there's a shift about two thirds of the way through the franchise when Cruz was feeling sort of like uninspired by the by by the whole thing, and someone was like, "Go watch some Buster Keaton movies. Go watch some Charlie Chaplin." And if you really like, if you really step back from the Mission Impossible uh, tone and you look at it structurally, the last two or three are absolutely Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin movies. They, there are set pieces, there are action set pieces. Like I want to do a thing where I run and I jump and I nearly fall. Like that's how Chaplin would do it. He'd be like, I'm going to do this thing with the cane. But then you have to figure out how to link all of those set pieces with story that make people feel something. And for all of its sort of like broad brush, bright color paint strokes of who those characters are, they're very archetypal, they're very straight ahead, there's not a lot of depth there. 
Um, there is so much thought put into the emotional journey that connects those set pieces that I, I re there is a way to do my inside out approach to storytelling and still come up with something that is plot driven and action heavy and boom and explodes. Um, and I just, I think those are some of the best action movies around because they are so grounded in the emotional journeys of the characters while having these incredibly complex, elaborate, breathtaking action set pieces. Um, but there just aren't a lot of people in our business whose minds work that way. Um, and it can get frustrating. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. You know, I mean, it, it's certainly in film, I think it's, uh, it's certainly the case where a lot of directors are are more concerned with character than they are with plot, you know, but I mean, it, it depends obviously, you know, it, but I think the good ones obviously really care. Um, yeah. I don't mean to suggest that directors don't care. I think they do, I, but I, you can get to the same place from different directions is what I'm right. saying. Right. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. Like film Scott, that director I was talking about always would say film is a medium for plot. Uh, TV is a medium for character. And that's purely by just the nature of the times, just period. the running times of like these shows, yeah. and yeah, the, that's true. Because on Halt and Catch Fire, you could have never had those sort of character arcs over time in just sure. like a an encapsulated hour and a half or two hour movie. No way, you know. And there no. was so, and you and you guys were so effective at it. And by the way, I have to say, I, I used to work for IBM. So, oh wow! So so I'm I'm almost like the perfect uh, demographic for that show. Oh, I used, I used to work for them as a filmmaker, actually, like like uh, making content, like uh, documentary stuff, telling stories about Watson and, and, and you know, all, IBM's quantum computing technology. So when I saw that show, I'm like, I can't believe I've never heard of this show before. <laughs> every, every single time I turn someone onto the show, that's that's the end response. And it's one of my favorite things because I'll tell, I'm like, listen, you're my friend. I'm not pressuring you. You'll get to it when you get to it, but like you should really get to it. And then like six months to a year later, I'll get this text like, I can't believe so-and-so just died. Oh my God, I can't stop crying. I'm like, I yeah. fucking told you to watch it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really, I just want to put a fine point on the fact that it, I'm not suggesting that I don't think directors care about character. I think they absolutely do. I just think the way they, not all directors, but a lot of directors get to character is through plot. And I get to plot through character. And it's just when those are the case, when that's the case, it often becomes difficult to have a creative conversation. No, no, and that I, makes sense. I like, I like how you phrase it's that. Just, it's just a bit more of a struggle. Yeah, no, well said. Um, could you could you describe for either new screenwriters or established ones what a development process for a project may be like when a writer works with an established director preparing a screenplay draft, um, perhaps with the knowledge or understanding that the director will eventually do a rewrite of your draft? Sure. I mean, my understanding, again, I'm only on my second feature project although I have a lot of feature writer friends, but my general understanding is like, you can almost guarantee a director is going to do a pass on your shit. <laughs> um, or it's going to get taken away from you and given to another writer. Um, the amount, the, the guild, the writer's guild credits process is very rigorous. And depending on who you talk to, um, I think for the most part, very fair. No system is perfect, but when you see particularly big blockbusters, but really most movies, there will be one or two names on a screen written by. There are very likely two to 10 other writers 
who did drafts of that, who were not given credit for one reason or another. Um, so I think when you go into features, you really have to have the mindset of like, I'm going to do my best work in this moment. And then it's going to be up to the studio and the director what happens to that work. Like, and, um, and that's certainly, and you know, my first proper feature project was with this director named Paolo Sorrentino, who, if people have not seen any of his movies, I just, he's, he's, he's amazing. And I was so moved by his, just his visual language. Um, I don't, I didn't particularly find any of his movies um, uh, satisfying from a story perspective, but I found them all satisfying on an emotional level. And his ability to impact me emotionally was almost entirely because of his visual language and the choices he made with, you know, where to put the camera and how to cut. And, um, and it, I found his movies just incredibly emotionally impactful. So I knew going in, I mean, one, he's Italian. He barely speaks English. It's better now, but when we started, he barely speaks English. He's an Italian man. I'm a woman. <laughs> like, you know, nothing against Italian culture, but like it's a super patriarchal um, situation. So I really went in with as much humility as I could muster. And um, again, sort of what I'd learned from being in writer's rooms and being the only woman and how to sort of mitigate my own personality and gently hold the men in the room <laughs> so they could hear me. Um, you know, I when Powell and I worked in person, it was incredibly productive and collaborative. Um, but there came a time where he just wanted to take the script and go off and do whatever he wanted to do with it. And I can't pretend like that wasn't uncomfortable. Like I don't, I'm a human being. Like you, I can't be a total Zen master all the time. Um, but I knew going in that that was the very likely outcome was that he was gonna take my work and make it his own. So you just have to sort of get right with that in the beginning and the project I'm working on now, you know, I, the, the director, it just, like the Paolo thing, I had come up with the original version of it. I came on the project first and then he came on. So like, that was a slightly different dynamic. The project I'm now, on now, it generated with the director. He was out with the studio looking for a writer. So it's his project. Um, I'm very much a writer for hire. And so I, you just have to sort of, and it's not hard to draw on the television experience because when you're a staff writer, when you're on someone's staff, you're in service of the showrunner. So I just sort of translated that experience of like, I'm here to channel this person's voice and this person's vision, um, which was, I will admit, much harder with Paolo because he's such a singular, singular creative force. And what, and what was the title of the project uh, they worked on with Paolo? Uh, I don't know what it's going to end up being called. Oh, gotcha. It's, it's still, I think yeah. I do, but I will be honest, but I don't love the title. So until it's official, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> but um, the working title is called Mob. It's based on a book called Mob Girl about this real this real life woman named um, Arlene. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten her real last name. I think we changed it. And anyway, who grew up, her dad was in the Jewish mafia and she grew up you know, around a bunch of Italian mobsters in the 50s and 60s and became a sort of like a runner for them and ended up flipping and turning a witness for the FBI. And she's sort of a really heartbreaking, tragic, fascinating character. But, you know, we set out Jennifer Lawrence is star starring and 
you know, we really set out, it was a bunch of women who came together to sort of initially generate this project. And we set out to like, look at, to sort of deconstruct them. The way I looked at it was, this was the, like, as Exile in Guyville, Les Fier's album is to Exile in Main Street, the Rolling Stone album, this was gonna be the woman's perspective on Goodfellas. Like this, this was the way to like take apart Goodfellas and to a lesser extent the Godfather, but really take apart those super masculine driven um, mafia narratives and turn them inside out and look at how a world like that impacts women and the role they play in that, in that culture. So that was the starting point. And so, you know, it's tough when you've set out to do something that's frankly aggressively in, intentionally feminist, you know, with a dude Italian director. You have to constantly be like, I understand why you made that choice, but I need you to look at it from a woman's perspective. And, you know, this is how rape impacts you. And this is how you talk about rape. And um, it's, it's complicated. And he's open, you know, he knows, he said very early on, he's like, I'm not a woman. I don't know, I don't know what this is like, so I can't. Usually he writes alone with the translator. So even working with me in the beginning was a sign of, you know, openness and humility on his part. So yeah, sorry, I got a little off track. There, no, no, it's really interesting stuff. You just have to go in with the attitude of like, you're, you know, going back to Scott Brazil, my, my boss from the shield, you know, he really believed that we were all in service of the story and all in service of the characters. And um, that's how I work to keep my ego in check is just like, yeah, I don't like, sometimes I don't always like the, the dynamic, the power dynamic that's insisted upon by directors because it's just the nature of features. But if I just set aside my sort of moral distaste with that way of collaborating and just remind myself that I'm in service of story and I'm in service of character and that's why I'm there, um, it's pretty easy to get over those little like personal insecure emotional hitches of like, can't we just work as a team? Like why? <laughs> When is it? Why does it have to be like this? Um, yeah, but that's Hollywood, man. It's just like the nature of the beast. So that's yeah. true. And kind of, kind of on that thought, do you have any advice for younger writers that are trying to break into TV? Or don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. Uh, you know, you have to really love it. Uh, it used to be um, that if you broke into television and you really got your foot in the door and you sort of got some momentum, that you were guaranteed a comfortable upper middle class life at worst. Like that's as bad as it would be is you'd have like a nice house in the valley and your kids would go to private school and you would retire comfortably. Thanks to our union, we have an excellent retirement plan and an excellent health insurance plan. Um, but the way that the business is shifting, that's not the case anymore. It's really, and I'm hoping that, you know, over the next few negotiations that we're gonna be able to arrest the slide because we're a very powerful union and we're very good at our jobs, but but it's rough right now. It's rough. And those days of being able, of like a guarantee of a comfortable life are gone. You know, I, I talked to so many young writers who are new, like new to the guild within the last five to 10 years and um, they work pretty consistently and none of them have buying a house in their near feet. Like they just can't even imagine what that would be like to be able to afford a house. So I would say that if you really want it, I'm not discouraged, I, I'm joking, like if you want to do it, you should do it, but you you need to go in. I think there's this real misunderstanding that like, you know, television writers are like, you know, pretty rich people, like do really well, they get paid well. And we do get paid well when we're working, but when 
it used to, when getting a job on a show used to mean 22 episodes in a full year of employment. And now it means 10 episodes and maybe 20 weeks of employment. And maybe you only get one show a year. Maybe you only work for 20 weeks. That's a very different economic calculus. So, um, you know, just be, be a mentally and emotionally prepared for the economic reality of breaking into this business. Um, beyond that, I would say, you know, write all the time. I, I can't tell you how many young writers I've talked to who have one sample and that's fine. Like if it's great, fine, but like, that's not the way to set yourself up for success. You want a lot of samples. Um, and you need to be kind to everyone. Uh, if people want to, I know plenty of showrunners who will hire someone who is middle of the road, good at the writing part, but who is a joy to be around over someone who is an absolute fucking banger of a script writer and is a nightmare in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's great and you, advice. And you, yeah. And you can prove that early on. I mean, I, again, I came up through the assistant ranks. So, and I have parents in the business, which is how I broke in. Like, I always have to be super honest about that. It's an incredible privilege. Um, the door was already cracked for me. Did, did they work specifically in TV? Um, my dad's a musician and a songwriter and a composer. So he, he did film and TV, but like music for gotcha, them. Gotcha. Um, but he just, he's been around Hollywood forever. And he, you know, like, you know, he does the music for the Collins movies. He, you know, nice. has friends who are directors. And so it was just like, you know, he called his friends, Gary Ross and got me a job on the movie he was making, you know, like it's, that's just um, the unfortunate nepotism reality, but I got a job as an assistant. You yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, no, I was just listening to somebody else on another podcast the other day say that uh, about their parent that had gotten them a job in the industry. They were like, hey, but guess what? You're going to be working for free for eight months and you're going to be just grinding. So even when you can get your foot in the door that way, people don't realize that it's a, it's a serious grind uh, it's no so matter what. And, you know, we have to be honest about the reality that it's not only a privilege to be, to have a parent who can get you that job. It's a privilege to have a family that can support you so you can work for free for eight months or you can work for peanuts for how, you know, like it is not, if you are poor, uh, of color, queer, disabled, if you are any of the sort of non-normative uh, uh, sex of our society, um, unless you are born into this business, you are going to have a real fucking hard time breaking in. And that's just the reality. Um, I do believe that good writing always wins out in the end. Um, the reality is, and I always sound like an asshole when I say this, but it's just the truth. I did. I was a development assistant for a very long time. I read a lot of scripts. The vast majority of people working um, in film and TV are just good. They're not great, they're just good. Um, some of them are excellent technicians. Um, some of them are excellent politicians. They're great at playing the game. They're great at operating. They're great at networking. I am great at none of those things. I have to be a great writer. <laughs> um, so I, there is no one I've ever seen who was great, who didn't find their way. Um, I've seen a lot of mediocre motherfuckers who were just great at the other stuff also find their way. But if you're just good, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with being just good. Like that's normal. <laughs> um, you're gonna have to hustle 
Like you're gonna, it's gonna be hard because there's a lot of people. But could you, okay, so maybe this ties into a deeper topic, but one that I'm interested in your perspective in. Do you think somebody could, is it like, do you think it's like Kung Fu? Could somebody elevate themselves from being good to being perhaps great if they, through effort and discipline and, you know. Oh, absolutely. But what my point is, a lot of people don't do that. Right, right, totally. I guess I was just wondering if you think of, is is it a skill that somebody's either born with, they either have it or they don't, or is it something that you could sort of attain? I don't know. I've thought about this a little bit. Um, I think I think being great, if you want to be truly great, you have to have a thing inside of you that you can't be taught. I think, you know, the tech, the technique of this kind of storytelling can absolutely be learned. And the ability to, uh, I mean, our medium really is human emotion. And so, you know, going to therapy, going to restaurants alone and eavesdropping, wherever you are, being aware of human beings outside of yourself and how they operate and why taking note of like odd little lines that came out of a real human being's mouth that you maybe never would have written down just being super hyper aware of how human beings move through the world is a way to get really good because specificity is what separates the good from the great you know anyone can learn how to build a house right like these are where the studs go this is where the nails go but um the architecture of that house is where the specificity of the choices you make of where you put the doors and the windows and how big they are in relation to other things like those specific choices are what separate a cookie cutter suburban mcmansion from a beautiful old victorian do you know what i'm saying like that's a great analogy yeah yeah so um i do think with a lot of focus and effort and care and love and passion and this constant negotiation between your inner life and an awareness of your own emotional states and your own traumas and processes and hangups and then really trying to understand that in other people are what like combining that with the technique is what can take someone from good to great so maybe I disagree with what I said in the beginning. Maybe you really can't, but it's hard and it's not comfortable, you know, like and it's a particularly, and I felt this in myself. Like there was a period where I was like, oh, I've let myself plateau. I'm just really good. I've stopped trying to get great. I'm only really good. And I don't want to stay really good because I know I can be great. I'm not great yet, by the way, just to be clear, but I will be someday. It's um, like Kung Fu. You're working toward the yeah. black belt. <laughs> yeah. But I felt myself plateau because the reality is to survive in this business, I don't have to be great. I just have to be good. So I don't know. You might be selling yourself short. I mean, you're, well, I, you, you know, even your analogy just now about the house is spoken like a great writer. <laughs> oh, thank you. But it's, it's just, there the, the, the entropy, maybe that's not the right word, but the, again, because you have to do these things quickly, even when you're doing a 13 episode show that then writes everything and then shoots after it's done, there's, there's time balance. Like you have to get stuff done in, in a certain amount of time. Um, 
And executives don't really know the difference between good and great. They don't. And frankly, a lot of the times they want it worse. I mean, the number of times I just did a pilot for CW and God bless CW. The woman who runs the place is incredibly smart. And I think were she on HBO, she would be giving truly great notes. But she knows what their brand is, right? Like she knows they have a formula. And so the number of times I would get a note where I'm like, like, I understand why you're saying that, but that's worse. Like, that's hacky. Yes. I don't want to hack. I know, that's hacky. Listen, I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. It used to be when I was younger and I would read articles, like, when I was, you know, when I, before I got into filmmaking, I was like, oh, man, like, I'm like, I don't understand what some of these big directors are complaining about. Like, like if they're getting notes from the studio, they're like, you know, they're, they still get to be a director on a big project. And then later on, I don't want to say which company I worked for, but it was a large <laughs> corporation. <laughs> and I would be just be working on these corporate projects that I would be getting rounds of notes. And I'm like, man, the edits are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Yep. And at that same company, when I got hired, somebody said, you know, this place, sometimes it feels like we're, we start off with like, we're making wine and it's a fine wine. And then it gets watered down and watered down and watered down. I'm like, wow, that's such a, that's so true. And now you're now you're drinking boons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So I know what you're talking but about. You can understand the tension between ha wanting to do the work to get great and earning a paycheck. Like the, the energy in this business is towards being a hack. You will do better and your life will be easier if you're comfortable being a hack. And, um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, so if you're breaking in, I guess, you know, really the advice is just to write a ton and get as good as you can before you end up getting churned through this mach machine that wants everything to come out in the same sized cube. Yeah. Uh, I always give also the advice. I also mentor uh, film students. I, I, I always give them the advice. Also read a lot. I was yes. like, you don't want to be one of those people that like you write more screenplays than you've read, you know? Yeah. I've stopped doing, I mean, I have a lot of screenwriter friends who are really great about every, cause we get when award season comes around, we get most of the movies in script form yeah. and I never read them anymore. I used to read constantly, but yeah, just, but you also, it's different. You're also at a different level in your career. Yeah, you've again, built a foundation. I have people that are my at my level who every year read all those scripts. And yeah. I think there's a real benefit to that. I just, um, I, I also think this is the sort of trade-off. I don't think you just have to read scripts. I think reading novels and nonfiction, right. and poetry, just reading. Totally. Yeah. I tell them that too. I say read books, you know, yeah. uh, I, also, I don't know. I'm finding a lot of the younger generation is not into books. I don't, the, really? so, I don't know. It depends, you know? Like it's maybe it ha maybe this is more anecdotal with people that I've been speaking to, but I'm like, do you read books? And they're like, no, I read articles and stuff like that. But huh. I'm like, really, not, not books. I feel like yeah. I, I feel like it's. I don't know that I could paint with the broad. I have a 23 year old sister, and she reads voraciously. But um, but yeah, I, the other thing I would say, particularly if you break in and you're on the train and you're like, fuck yeah, I did it, because it's hard to hop that train. You have to have to have to find. Um, find adventures and experiences for yourself outside of Los Angeles. You know, I quit an assistant job to go work on the Obama campaign. Changed my life. Changed the way I see the world. Changed 
my circle of friends changed everything, changed my approach to storytelling. You know, I moved to Nashville for a million reasons, but one of them is I just cannot be in Los Angeles anymore. Like it is so insular and your perception of humanity, of the world, of what matters to people is so myopic when you're in that churn of Hollywood. Um, not just less, even in Los Angeles, you could find your way out of that churn in what is truly one of the most sprawling metropolitan areas in the country. But you have to force, you have to challenge yourself to get outside of that machine because it will turn you, like, there's a great David Foster Wallace essay that I cannot, it might actually be called like on television or something, but he talks about how he feels like a lot of writers um, are gaining their experiences of what human beings are and how they operate by watching movies and television. And so it's this feedback loop of like, it's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And there's, it's just like brainy black and white. You don't even know what it is anymore. So it goes back to what I was saying about observing the world around you. You know, if you get that, if you're so lucky as to get on that train, find a way to get off and take a break and go experience other parts of the country or the world or other human beings. Cause you got to fill up that well, you got to fill up that creative well. And you never know like what that weird thing you saw on vacation in Peru, how it's going to come back around two years later when you're breaking a story. Like it, it just always, yeah. it always blows up. Absolutely. So yeah, that was a little rambling. No, that's no, my- that, no. Well, listen, that's, that's what attracted me into filmmaking. Cause I always say there's no other craft where like, let, let's say like you're a plumber and you read a book about serial killers. Like it's not going to help you in your craft of being a plumber. But if like, if you're a filmmaker, you read that book, it could help you if you're like, if, if you're a writer in particular or like whatever, you know, then it'll, it'll help like everything that you see, everybody that you meet, it all could tie in to it. Yeah, you know? that's right. So, so I, I get it. And I think that's great. Um, I guess, could you share with the listeners any, what you plan to work on next, whether it's in film or TV? I mean, I'm always doing everything The the other reality of this business, because of those short seasons that I was talking about, you know, going from 22 to 10 or 13. Um, and because I chose to move to Nashville, you have to just keep a lot of irons in the fire at once. Um, I mean, my goal is to have my own show and to create and run my own TV show. But, um, but I don't, um, I don't just want any show on the air, you know, like I want to find a partners producer wise, studio wise, network wise, where I feel like I can actually make, if not the show I want to make really close to it. Um, and it, that gets, it's getting harder and harder these days. There was like that beautiful little window when the streamers were just so hungry for content and cable was really having its big moment, you know, breaking bad, mad men. There's the, you know, we could list all the shows that really came out of that era. It's getting harder and harder to have a singular vision, but that's still the goal. So I just develop constantly. I'm just constantly got projects in one phase or another of pitching or pilot writing. And I'm open to feature assignments because it's an easy way, not an easy way to pay the bills. That was That's <laughs> false. Nothing's easy. Yeah. But it's, um, it's I can do it from anywhere. It's easy in that I don't have to be in Los Angeles. <laughs> right. So um, I'm, uh, you know, stuff comes to me, to my managers all the time. And so I'm always open to feature projects because I can write them here in my beautiful new home where it rains, where there's water that falls from the sky, unlike in drought-ridden Southern California. <laughs> But the goal, the hope is that one of these many things I'm developing will hit and get picked up and then I'll go back to LA and make it. But um, 
yeah, there's nothing worth naming specifically because it's all so far from being a real thing, which is unfortunately, you know, the nature of the business. Though I will say this, this will be the last piece of advice I give to new and emerging writers. You have your greatest power as an artist in business is the power to say no. And, you know, I think I'm not alone in saying that I love this work so much I would do it for free. Like I get paid to deal with the bullshit. Um, the writing part I would do whether or not anybody was paying me. Um, and it's so hard to break in that there is this energy of like, uh, at all, please them at all costs, whatever, like, I just, this is an opportunity. I just want to grab onto this opportunity and hope that it's the thing that takes me to the, you know, the promised land. Um, and the reality is this is labor. What we are doing is labor and it creates immense value for these companies. We're talking about, you know, multi billions of dollars <laughs> of value that we create. And by the way, we are the wellspring of wealth in this business. Nothing happens until synapses fire in our brain and words come out of our fingers into a laptop. Like nothing happens. It all starts with us. That is immense power. And there has been this slide over the last five to seven years in development where people, there's so many young writers so hungry to get started. And well, that's a whole, I could go down a whole other route about what's caused this moment, but I will not bore you with it. Um, if you want to have another conversation about the business, call me back and we'll have Definitely. it. Um, but basically what's happened is producers will be like, oh, I've got this book or I've got this idea or I've got these life rights. Do you want to come on board and develop it with me? And so young writers will end up doing six months, a year, 18 months, two years of free work before they even take this project out to pitch it to a buyer. That is fucking bullshit. That never used to happen. If you want to pitch out of me, you have to pay me. I do not work for free, period. Yeah. I have made a couple, like if it's my own project that I have generated from my own mind, well, sure. But if it's your, you producer, you're drawing a salary, you network executive, you're drawing a salary, but yet you want me to work for free because there's a chance that it might get on the air. I know what those odds are. I know the vast majority of shows that get developed never make it to the air. So if you want me to sit down at a laptop and do labor, you have to pay me for it. I have a very specific amount of, because there's these things called open writing assignments, right? Where like, this is what I'm talking about. A producer has a book or whatever. I will take a day or two to come up with a high level take. And if you like it, great, pay me. You can pay me to do the next step. Um, and I used to be a little bit fuzzier about this only in the last year have I started drawing a really hard and fast line and writers come to us at the guild all the time complaining about like, this is, a, um, this is a nightmare. No, listen, I, that, that happens even I'm in production. I get it. I had a, I had a friend of mine tell me like, Hey, I want, I want you to come out and shoot this documentary with me. Like blah, blah, blah. We're, you know, it's not going to be paid. And I'm like, listen, you're my friend. I, I care about you. But if you were if you were doing if you were building your house and you had somebody and this is literally what I said to him. I was like, if you were hiring somebody to put sheetrock in your house, you say, hey, you know, I'm building this house. It's going to be awesome. Could you put up the sheetrock for free? I'm like, no, you'd pay them like 350 bucks a day or whatever it was. And then you do it. I'm like, how? Why is it different? You know, why? Why should it be different? Just because I have a camera and all this production gear. You know, and he was like, yeah, you're right. Okay. What do you need? <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Yeah. 
But the, you know, we, this is, you know, this is when I turn into a fucking Marxist, even though like Marxism, whatever, uh, yeah. I'm just anti I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not any, I don't subscribe to any ideology. You're like Ferris anything. Bueller. Isms yeah. or <laughs> that. Fuck them all. Yeah. Um, but there is this real, and I, this is a, another privilege of having grown up the daughter of somebody in the business already is this perspective. Um, but it is really difficult to find a balance in a capitalist society between the vocation, the love, the passion, the art, you know, and, and how we value it. Um, and it's, they pray, these executives, business affairs people and lawyers, they prey on the fact that this is, this is passion for us. We do this because we have a deep love for it. I don't know that somebody who hangs sheetrock has a deep love for sheetrock. Like this is the this is the true evil of capitalism. Is it flattens? That's true. Yeah. It flattens every it flattens everyone into you know dollars and cents. So That's you have to. Point. It's a real mind fuck to find that balance in your head, but you have to draw a hard line. Um, and because this slide has been so quick and precipitous. Um, in terms of this free work problem. And it's, you know, it is it is a massive problem that has really only cropped up in the last five to seven years. The only way it's going to stop is if writers say no. It's the guilds cannot solve it. We cannot fix it in the minimum basic agreement, which is the contract we negotiate for all writers to set a floor. Um, we can we can try to negotiate for it, but if if you're going around, if you're if you know that the rule is no free work. And you're saying, okay, I'll do one more pass for you, producer, for free before we turn it into the studio. That is weakening every other writer, that choice. And I know it's hard to say no. It's scary to say no. There are plenty of agents who will be like, just do it, man. You'll never, like, you want to keep working, don't you? You know what? You know what I have found is that when you have respect yourself and you draw hard boundaries, other motherfuckers respect you too. Absolutely. I agree. Um, so you've just, you know, that's, that's, that is, um, as people are breaking in and I realize that is not, I have the luxury, I could not have said, although that's not true. I did say no to some stuff when I was younger that felt like a big opportunity. And they were like, you know, somebody wanted me to do a rewrite for them on this little indie movie and they were going to pay me $5,000. And I was like, no, no, that's like three months of work. I'm not doing that for $5,000. So you just have to find that internal core of confidence and know that this is, here's another way to put it. This guy, Glenn Mazzara, who I adore, he was the number two on The Shield. He's created the show called Damien. He's a wonderful, wonderful man, a really good writer and um, a stalwart in our guild, like has gone out of his way in every direction to help other writers fucking love him. But he said to me very early on when I was on The Shield, He's like, if you look at every opportunity in front of your face as a young writer, or even as any part of your career writer, you look at every opportunity directly in front of your face as the one, like, I need this, this has to happen, I have to have this. Oh God, if this doesn't work, everything's over. If you have that mentality, then your entire career is this just like vicious roller coaster ride of ups and downs. But if you keep your, if you figure out what your end goal is, like at the end of my career, this is what I want to feel like. This is the body of work I want to have been involved with. This is the this is my teeny tiny little speck of sand that I want to like leave on the earth when I go. If that is your where your your focus is, then everything smooths out. And you recognize that like 
opportunities will come and opportunities will go and some will work out and some won't. Um, and when it's meant to hit, it'll hit. And I've really been able to drop into, I've had a lot of things go south, had a lot of things not work out. And I took that advice from Glenn very, very early on. And it's part of what's allowed me to say no when I need to say no. And it's allowed me to um, weather some disappointments with relatively little impact. I mean, like it sucks when a project doesn't get picked up, but you know, it doesn't wreck me. I have writer friends who are wrecked, wrecked when projects don't get picked up. It just, you have to find a way to widen your vision and let it all smooth out because otherwise you're just going to like be sick all the time. Um, that's great I think advice. I no, that's Hopefully great advice. That's Angelina, <laughs> we really appreciate having you on the podcast on Globe Screen. Thank you so much for having me.